Welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. My name is Dave Wright, co-founder and editor of Player Development Project. PDP is a website for coaches who are committed to learning, and we provide a huge library of resources which consists of cutting-edge insights from the world's most innovative player developers, coach educators, and researchers. If you want to learn from the best and join a community of like-minded coaches, then check out playerdevelopmentproject.com. On this week's Player Development Project podcast, we're joined by one of our expert contributors from the PDP network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion. Really pleased to be joined today by Russell Earnshaw, England under-18s rugby coach. Russell, how are you? I'm good, mate. You well? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, first of all, before we sort of get into some questions around rugby and, and coaching and all the things that are going on in your world, can you give us a little bit of insight into your personal journey in coaching and how you've ended up in this role as England under-18s coach? Wow, you've started off pretty with a long... Oh, wow, jeez. <laughs> So, uh, uh, oh, how far back do we go? Uh, yes, so I, I left university, went straight into playing rugby. Uh, back in the day where rugby players went to university, it was the, kind of the norm. Um, I then played a little bit. A uh, couple of coaches got sacked. I ended up coaching a bit. Um, no plan, really. I was fortunate that along the way I did so- – a bit of the coaching qualifications and possibly more importantly had some really good mentors around me. Uh, I then started coaching with England Sevens with uh, Ben Ryan. Uh, I took a bit of a break uh, after six or seven years on the World Series. I spent two years teaching economics at uh, a school on the uh, on the coast and I'm, I'm still missing the sea. Uh, and then I've just, uh, this job came up really. Uh, it's possibly my dream job. Um, partly because of the people I work with. So I would really be about the people. So John Fletcher, Peter Walton, guys like that are the real reason I wanted to come back into this job because I knew I would learn lots from them and that we would be having a really positive impact on on young people. So is it really about that sort of developmental age which appeals to you so much in terms of it being your, your dream role as well? Yeah, I think so. I, mean, we, I, I work all the way, you know, I coach on a Sunday morning, I coach under 13s, uh, the mighty old Bristolians. Uh, I, I, I do lots of stuff with, with age groups younger than that. With England, we tend to work with kids who are, we start to see them at about under 15, uh, not with it, not in an England context, but with their, on a, on a much broader scale within the DPPs and their clubs. And then, yeah, that's the, the players that, um, at 17, 18, that start to play with the England team. And then obviously those guys are now out in Georgia playing with the under 20. So we kind of, the start of the pathway, really. Um, they're great fun. They keep you young. Uh, they're high energy. They all want to be there. Um, I'm, you know, I'm learning how to do fist bumps and different high fives. And, you know, it's definitely a, um, it's a really good age to work with. Fantastic. Um, I, I know I was, uh, I asked Eddie Jones, I did a and a with him the other day, and I asked him what's been the impact of the young players, so the Currys and uh, Fiji Joe and, and uh, Nick Iziki and those guys coming into the England environment on the coaches. And he said, wow, they've, you know, they're definitely challenging us as coaches and they're bringing some real energy. So I just think they have a positive impact on me. So even from a slightly selfish point of view, it's quite exciting. Sounds like you're really enjoying the role. And you mentioned earlier you've 
done some coach education and some qualifications along the journey. I mean, how does coach education look at the RFU and, and what, what is the pathway for coaches in rugby in England? Um, <clears throat> well, it's, it's possibly like, uh, like the development pathway for players, i.e. there's not really a straight line. Um, a range of, of formal courses that people can do, a, ra- a range of informal, much more informal stuff going on now. I think we're trying to tip the balance towards more informal opportunities to learn that are that are experiential. Um, <clears throat> we're working hard on mentoring, so we're working hard on either one-on-one or connecting coaches up, so little coaching communities either by areas or um, or just by actually me connecting someone up and saying, I actually think you two would, would benefit each other. Um, we've tried to bring in people from outside rugby, so we've tried to look at cross sports. So there would be some guys, um, Christian Speakman of Birmingham City, uh, and we chatted about Mike Cave at Fulham. So some of those guys that are both in our camps and we're going into their environments and they're having conversations with coaches and just to give different perspectives, really, so that coaches can perhaps take some some cool ideas or some really uh, useful principles into their context. Brilliant. Yeah, certainly uh, I've been lucky enough to interview Christian Speakman and what an environment he's built there at Birmingham. Obviously, I know Mike as well and uh, two good guys with good reputations. So it sounds like it's nice to see uh, your sport reaching out. Uh, in terms of your biggest challenges, you've got a playing career behind you in terms of you know domestic rugby and you've played some international stuff, especially with the Sevens game. Can you tell us about the transition uh, going from player to coach? Because this is a debate, I guess, that rages on social media and it rages in the world of coaching of the transition from ex-pros through to coaches. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely, uh, I wouldn't say it was easy easy sailing for me. I, I was a player coach as well, which I definitely wouldn't recommend to anyone. Um, uh, we have a lot of players that uh, you know come to the end of their careers, some guys who've got unbelievable experiences, um, who can have um, real positive impact. So for a really good example would be Richard Hill. So Richard Hill, MBE, uh, is involved in our pathway with mentoring young players. So I guess whether we make a difference in coaching or mentoring, he's actually he actually is, is fulfilling that role within the pathway and he's, he's really, really good at it. He's just got that kind of nurturing um, aspect of him but also just this incredible knowledge understanding of what it felt like uh, ability to you know some of the tricks of the trade uh, fast forwards that to other situations I can think of we got some coaches who are you know they're, they're a player one day they're told they're a coach the next day and they're coaching in the premiership um, without really any support so mm. I think our, our job is to understand that the reality is that there will be some guys who will be excellent coaches who were ex-players and help support those guys as much as possible. I think the clubs are, are doing a good job with in many situations. I think we're trying to support as much as we can as well, really. Um, I think it can be frustrating for some people. I think they think it would be like, uh, you know, you do your level one, your level two, your level three, you, you know, you work your way up. And uh, However, the reality is that that isn't our world. So we... we I think part of my role is to help support as best as possible those those guys and hopefully identify some of those guys that, that will be really good coaches. Um, and I guess it's the same as guys that didn't play. There'll be some guys that are, you know, have got a real propensity to be a good coach and 
want to learn and want to get better and are really open and really curious and there'll be there'll be guys that think a little bit differently to that I think that's the key word, curious, is that the key characteristics in, in terms of what we've found and a lot of the research that we've done at PDP is around coaches who have that constant desire to learn are usually the best. And uh, that those coaches that never accept that they know it all are the best. So I think if you've got that curiosity, whether you're an ex-player or not, that's certainly going to lend itself to to at least a, a positive start in your coaching journey. Yeah, and, and what, I've, what I've also observed is, so when we've had ex-players that have been into, already been into lots of different environments, then actually that helps as well. If you've been in one environment all your life, then to coin a, a Googleism, you'd be trapped in your river of thinking. So you think there's only one way to mm. to do it. So, um, I, you know, I, I, and I think they're becoming more and more aware of that. So we would have lots of players coming to the end of their career who are reaching out for experiences. So they're... Um, coming into our environment, I'm connecting them up with other environments, other people are supporting them as well, and, and they're just trying to broaden their horizons a little bit. Mm. I mean, the, the 20s is, is a good example. So we've got three coaches. We've got Ian Vass, Tom Williams, and, and Deeks, who are out in Georgia at the moment, who have club commitments, but are also coaching now in a 20s environment, supported by Steve Bates. So they'll be out in Georgia for a few weeks, and I mean, that's just a phenomenal learning opportunity for those guys. Absolutely. Sounds like a really nice support network around those guys coming through. In terms of, uh, you know, constraints-based approach, this is an idea that we promote a lot uh, for various reasons. And we also look to try and encourage coaches to embrace non-linear pedagogy. And you, and you spoke about the idea of, you know, the, the coach's journey being non-linear as well. Is this an approach that you utilize in your coaching methodology week to week? And um, if so, what are the benefits in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty standard in our environment if you came in. Uh, I, I often talk about my view of the game is that in training and in the game, that we're, everyone's playing this game that we call rugby or, or, or a version of it. Um, I think we're a little bit constrained by the version we see on the TV. So there will be lots of different types of games. But within that game, everyone's playing a different game. So, uh, I, you know, the, the big kid who's from a young age has been just running over people with the ball in one hand. Well, actually, he's playing a game where if he gets touched, then perhaps it's a turnover. Or if I want to be positive, then actually he's getting uh, extra points for assists. Uh, the kid who's out on the, who's been stood out on the wing, we've, we've, we're actually looking at ways of bringing him in through constraints. A really good one I saw the other week at, uh, at Matson was a coach just went up to the the dominant player in the session that who was the fly half and said, look, if you can, without telling anyone, if you can get this kid to score two tries in the next five minutes, then you, your team gets an extra thousand imaginary points. <laughs> love a thousand imaginary points. Um, however, so this kid scores two tries and he's just to see how this kid feels. He definitely wants to come back to rugby. Mm. He's certainly excited. Whereas he may just have been that guy that stands on the wing for a couple of sessions and goes, actually, this isn't much fun. Um, so that would be pretty typical in our environment. We'd, we'd also have, we'd also be playing around with constraints with coaches a lot. Mm. So my part of my role is really to help support everyone in our environment with, um, with them getting better as, um, as, as coaches, as analysts who are also, we would consider coaches as uh, the, the, the S and C as the physio, as the, so when you come into our camp, you'd have challenge cards. So, 
And depending upon which person you are, I might give you a week's notice and go, look, um, this is what we're going to do. Um, it, with John Fletcher, who I work with, I'd feel pretty comfortable going into a meeting and just handing him a challenge card for the meeting. Okay. So we would be trying to – I'm being really open about that in front of the kids. We're actually trying to get better. So showing that as coaches, we're trying to improve, that we're willing to be vulnerable and get stuff wrong. Uh, so a good example would be uh, Fletch is he talks a lot in huddles. So, you know, today you're at the maximum huddle you're allowed is 20 seconds. Uh, Dave, who's the physio, Dave would be um, he said, oh, I only know all the unfit players. So his challenge on his challenge card is you're only allowed to have lunch with players who are fit. Yeah. So, and then we would just chew the fat on the evening and talk about, you know, what have we learned as management group as well? Um, so we would, yeah, would be we'd be using constraints led approach with players and with and with adults. To some, some excellent examples there, particularly around the social side as well, which is I guess often an element of sport which is neglected or, or taken for granted. Is probably a better way. In terms yeah, of a really good one that I was just thinking about. So one of my I really enjoy this Abraham Lincoln quote, which is uh, 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 I do not like that man. I must get to know him better. So we would, yeah. My observation of coaches is it's really easy to coach the kind of blonde and compliant kids that are at the top end. So if you were coaching Owen Farrell, I've never been lucky enough to, then I imagine it's it's relatively easy. However, it's actually the kids that are a bit more challenging that, or the kids that aren't like you that you need to spend more time with. So Fletch had one where we picked um, the three guys who were the least like Fletch. So they would be the line-out callers who are actually – really process-focused, task-orientated, you know, Fletch would be a little bit different to that. And his challenge was to go and have, you know, three meaningful conversations with the lads during the day. And um, and at the end of the day, we were chewing the fat and said, oh, you know, how was that conversation? Oh, yeah, it was, you know, brilliant. Da, da, da. And then I said to the lads, oh, you know, how do you guys have a bit of a conversation with Fletch today here? And they were like, did we? <laughs> And his version of a conversation was really different to their version. Of yeah, course. right. And so, um, yeah, we would just be, you know, we would try and gamify. We would try and um, make playful us getting better as adults as yeah. well. Yeah, it's, it's got to be done, that constant learning. In, in terms of your, you've sort of spoken about some really positive support, um, you know, pillars of support, I guess, around the coaches and players and some good initiatives happening within your environment and others in rugby. If you were to be critical, what are some of the constant issues you see in coaching and player development in the game? Are there anything, is there anything that you think is really the elephant in the room or something that needs to be addressed? Um, I think one of our challenges is that Certainly at this kind of age that we're talking about, so under 18, th what I'm talking about is becoming the norm. So in lots and lots of environments, um, a fair amount of exploration, uh, lots of um, um, constraints that approach around IDPs based around strengths, um, some really good mentoring in place, um, players having, you know, really some good challenging fixtures, a good competitive menu to help them get better. It's then really our, well, what comes next for a lot of these players. So they leave school, I guess a bit like football, the premierships in rugby is becoming more and more competitive, lots and lots of good players. You know, the academies have produced some really good players over the years and they're kind of filling up in the prem. There's uh, some excellent players from abroad who are definitely adding value. Um, it's them. So how do we look after the kids beyond 18? So you know, and also, how do we help prepare them for the fact that they may not 
experience a similar environment when they go into first team. So, um, as I say, Batesy, who's doing stuff with the 20s, and um, those guys are working really hard on that. And I know we're looking at uh, trying to increase the availability of fixtures. A lot of the clubs are starting to connect up with universities a bit more because they see the, the benefit of having perhaps a longer longer term view of looking at the players. Um, the A-League is going to have um, more fixtures next year. I think there's some, some good stuff going on around loan arrangements. Um, but that's been something that's uh, just because of how, you know, how much higher the quality and the, the top has become. Mm. Um, however, that said, you know, you actually look at guys like the Currys and Nick Aziki and, um, and Fiji Joe, who were playing England under 18s last year and have been playing for England this year. So, I mean, mm. there's also some, some rock stars that are coming through really quickly. Yeah, it sounds like there's evidence of a pathway and you guys obviously consciously working to sort of bridge the gap between the age groups and that transition in all sport is very difficult, isn't it? But it uh, sounds like you're, you're, you're working towards some positive steps there. Yeah, and, and there's always going to be, you know, we're always going to be challenged by the coach that's always done it this way. Mm. So that's going to be a... So I'm always, you know, we're tr- trying to work hard with... Um, to influence those guys so you know whether that's getting them into into a certain environment to see what it, it, it could possibly look like whether that's actually getting some feedback from the kids i think some of the most powerful stuff i've seen is actually kids telling adults how they feel um what's the stuff they love what's the best thing about their coach what's the stuff that they they change if they could so always you know we just want the kids to have a really safe learning experience excellent excellent well one thing that stood out to me earlier was you mentioned that um you sort of identify players not necessarily in an england context but you do identify players around 15 now talent id in football particularly is getting younger and younger and there's no doubt that there's some there's some practices which could be seen as questionable around how early kids should be getting involved with organized or elite sports so can you explain a little bit about how talent ID works within the national setup and, and your views around when we should be putting players into more formal or even labeling elite? And we don't really like the word elite, but putting them into those environments where they're being stretched. Yeah, interesting. I mean, interestingly, uh, the academies have an EPDG, which is elite player development group. Most of them have taken the elite out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we're, we would be really broad-based. So kids start to be involved in the DPP at under 13. It is not – you're not getting chopped. You're not it's, – it's it's much more longitudinal view. It's it's really individualised. Um, lots of good coaching going on. Um, some of the clubs would have up to, you know, a 1,000 involved and, and it, across the, the age groups, and it would, it would be based around them having fun. They want to create a – an experience that's memorable for young people and they want to come back. And, and alongside that, they want them to learn some, some life skills around maybe it's communicating or, or, or working as part of a team or creativity. So, and they would be pretty explicit and in, implicit on, on that stuff in, in most of the clubs. Now, I think they're doing a, a really strong job. Actually, what we one of the roles that's just come in in all the clubs is an academy which I'm calling an academy coaching wizard, which sounds more exciting. Um, and their job is to kind of help support those coaches in those environments. Um, I don't think we would really ever go. I think it's hard for us to separate talent ID, talent development. I think they're intertwined. Um, I think we could have a really long debate over what talent is. Mm. So um, the challenge for us is that talent is chosen on a Sunday morning by someone's dad. 
And so often we would have players that are in academies uh, that are second team players in in their club or their school because at the moment they're not the best player. Right. However, I think we've got some really good knowledge amongst the academies around looking at it more longitudinally, around you know relative age effect, around all of those things. Mm. Um, one of the most powerful things I saw was Don Barrel at Saracens when he. Um, he, he addressed the parents while the kids were outside, which is always a good idea. Keep the parents away from the kids. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, put your hand up if your son was born, you know, September, October, November. And it was it was a very large portion of the room. And it was really interesting because clearly the parents just hadn't thought about it. Mm. And then when you see them start to, to trigger and go, oh, OK. Oh, OK. An awakening. Yeah, yeah, a real awakening. And for the two parents whose kids were born in, uh, you know, in the last uh, three months of, uh, of the, uh, oh, okay, now I get why he's <laughs> And uh, you know, and it's just that's just a piece of information amongst lots of other bits of information that you saw. However, I, I, the other thing I think we're doing really well through the academies, and, and that would be a good example of it, is is engaging the parents yeah. and, and helping them through this process. Uh, I heard of, uh, I was the leaders in performance the other day at Man City and people were talking about in, in some of the clubs they've actually had to uh, stop parents going in and watching and and I think we're trying to be as proactive as possible in that area. It's, yeah. I really, you know, it, it's, my son plays on a Sunday morning and at times you, you, my wife's saying now, come on, be a dad, not a coach. Mm. <laughs> Just need to go ask him why he's shouting at kids. Yeah. It's just a bit weird. No, I think it's a very fine line, that disconnect with, with parents who are obviously going through a lot themselves. They're sacrificing a lot, whether it's grassroots, whether it's academy environments, and they're, they're having to put in a lot just to get their kids there. And it's a fine line. And I know having spoken to Scandinavian clubs that they really embrace the community model of everybody being a part of it, like a traditional club model should be, where everybody contributes and gets involved on game day, not so much in the coaching perhaps, but there is an inclusive feel to it. Whereas I think in the UK, at times, there's some uncertainty around how we deal with this in sport. And uh, it can be a difficult challenge because those parents are experiencing so much and their anxiety then can be reflected in their in their children who are playing the sport and, and all of that can become a bit of a dangerous mix. Yeah, I, I think it's just tough for them. I think we need to support them as, as best as possible. I really enjoyed, there's a picture on Twitter the other day of, uh, I think it was Lionel Messi watching his son playing. He was sat in yeah. a deck there. I was thinking if we just bought, you know, a million deck chairs. Exactly right. The pitches would be, you know, maybe that nudges what we need. I know you guys have used like the uh, respect banner. And um, so we're always just looking at ways we can, we can do that. I had a, um, we ran a conference through the week, actually had a lady called Suzanne Brown, who I'd seen, I did a TED talk at Birmingham city and she did one as well talking about attachment theory. And she did this uh, awesome thing really. So she got all the uh, adults to write down, you know, the the values of the kids and the stuff that they enjoy. So people writing down like playing with my mates, you know, having fun, connecting, you know, f feeling alive. Mm. So we put all the post-it notes on the wall. And then she said, well, look, if anyone's seen anything that would ruin something on there, could you just could you just rip that piece of paper? So people were saying, oh, well, I saw this guy, you know, shouting at his kid and did it. So... And you just end up with this wall of, of tattered dreams of kids. Actually, how does it make you feel as an adult? Incredibly sad. Yeah. A disappointed in, you know. So 
just thinking about ways we can get them to, to remember what it's like to be a kid as well. So we're always just trying to find ways. So if you've got any cool ways, I'm definitely keen to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's loads of uh, loads of content out there and, and some good ideas being tried at least. And that sounds like a pretty powerful visual, by the way. Thanks for tuning in to the Player Development Project podcast. For the full conversation with this guest expert, head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com and check out the Masterclass Discussion section. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.